title of this message this morning, this breakout and this conversation that we're going to have is 10 Things I Wish Someone Had Told Me 15 Years Ago. I've been pastoring over 15 years, actually, but, um, but I, I just I, I look back and I was thinking, even reflecting on this video with Eugene, I wish, um, I was thinking, what am I going to say when I'm Eugene's age? I'm 45, so Eugene's almost 80, so 25 years from now, I'm 35 years from now. What am I going to be saying? That's a long time. That's a, another lifetime away. So by the way, I want to introduce the love of my life, who I've uh, been married to her for 23 years, uh, still crazy about her, and I didn't get to introduce her last night because she wasn't there, or would have, and uh, so this is my wife, Pam. Pam, raise your hand, stand up. I want to welcome, this is my wife, Pam. And um, Pam and I got married when we were 12, and, uh, but it's worked out really well. Worked out very nicely, I think. And we have two children. Abram is almost 14 next month, which is hard to imagine that. He's an eighth grader, about to be a black belt, Taekwondo. So he's a lover, not a fighter, though. So, but, he, uh, but don't make him fight, he will. So he, uh, he's a tough guy. He's about that tall. He's a small guy, but um, scrappy. And then we have an, uh, an 11-year-old daughter named Callie. Callie is uh, 5'6", 11-year-old. So she's on her way to being about 6 foot tall, athlete, loves to shoot guns with dad, uh, does everything dad does, follows me right beside me. Uh, she doesn't have a hatchet or a gun or a horse like I did at 9, but she's close. So this morning I want to 10 things I wish someone had told me 15 years ago. Saved me a lot of grief, I think. And I hope this is helpful to you this morning. I think it's going to be very helpful. Uh, I know we have different ages in here. We have people that are uh, in the second half of their ministry. Maybe some of you that are starting your first part of the ministry journey that God's called you on. So 10 things I wish someone had told me 15 years ago. You ready? Number one, <laughs> my favorite. Sheep bites can't kill me, but the gnawing will make life miserable a few days each year. I, I, I know every pastor here can relate to that. It's, it's a privilege, by the way, to pastor people. I love the pastoring the people of New Life Church. I, 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 it's an honor and a privilege to be among them and around them and with them. But it, the reality is, is that pastors are, are leading a volunteer army. By and large, I have paid staff. And some of you have paid staff. But by and large, what we are leading is a volunteer army. And it's an army that we welcome input. We want input from the people we're leading. The problem is sometimes that input is critical. Sometimes it's pointed. And it can be, it can be hurtful. I don't know about you, but how many of you love the right after you preach Sunday uh, corrections from members? <laughs> I, I think, you know, and I'm, again, uh, this is something for me. I, I, I don't think people realize how emotionally vulnerable we are after speaking. For people who do public speaking, they, they have, it's different. Public speaking is much different than preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching is a spiritual exercise. It is spiritual battle. It is, it is a, a pastor who loves his people and understands that if they would just listen, that they would probably, their lives could be changed. There's this battle, this tension going on as you're preaching and teaching, and I do it twice on Sunday. I do a 9 o'clock and an 11 o'clock, and I, uh, I found that, that my, it takes a while to get my brain back to do it a, a second time. And the, the emotions of preaching, the, uh, the, the, the intellectual 
thing that happens, a spiritual battle that's happening, doesn't lend itself to quick criticism. I wish they would just wait until Tuesday morning, and then I could probably take it better, you know? And um, the sheet bites can't kill me, but the gnawing will make life miserable a few days each year. And I, I wrote this down one time. I was, this was years ago. I was going through uh, I was a, a period of time where the criticism, I just felt a little frail, a little vulnerable every time. I, I don't know why I was reacting so, difficult, you know, so strongly to criticism. But I was, and I was wondering, why am I so intimidated by what's most of the time helpful criticism? They're sheep. I'm, I'm a sheep, by the way, too. So I wrote this out. I, my, I have a degree in journalism, by the way, and so I, my, I, that was the deal I made with God. Please let me be a journalist and not a pastor, and he wouldn't let me. So, so to rebel against him, I got a journalism degree thinking that would change his mind. It didn't. So I wrote down like this firsthand news report about sheep. I'm going to read it to you, okay? This is something I wrote. I think you'll like it. Rogue sheep have been spotted around town, snarling at innocent bystanders, tipping over trash cans and chasing small pets. Police have warned residents to avoid these ferocious flocks because they're extremely irritable. Police say the sheep are armed only with four dull hooves and a set of teeth designed only for gnawing. Death by sheep attack would be slow and painful potentially taking weeks or months for them to actually kill you. Residents are advised that sheep are normally slow and are not able to overtake a person unless the person is lying down, asleep, or on crutches. (laughs) Police believe these attacks will eventually end, citing evidence that sheep are easily lost, distracted, and unable to find food or water on their own. They're also easy prey for predators, so police believe if the sheep are left to themselves... They will simply become extinct and pose no future problems for the people in the city. Now, <laughs> I wrote that to remind myself I have nothing to fear is the point of that. God's called us to this job as pastor and criticism comes with the game. And by the way, most, a lot of the criticism we get can be super helpful. Even the, the bad criticism. You can learn from all of it if we're listening and not defensive. So I wish somebody had told me that 15 years ago that would save me a lot of grief. Sheep bites can't kill me. But the gnawing will make life miserable a few days each year. Here's the second thing that I learned. Uh, I wish someone had told me 15 years ago. No matter how hard I try, I will always be tempted to measure my success by attendance numbers. Now, that's the truth. And I think if we were all honest, we'd say we nod our head. We may know with our head, but we're nodding yes with our heart. In this world of marketing and comparisons, We are quick to compare ourselves with other people, buildings, people, the number of people. All of those things creep into our soul over time, don't they, as pastors? And and although we know it's evil, we know it's not godly, we we wish we weren't wired that way, but because we're Americanized, because we're in the American culture, it's a constant battle with all of us to compare our attendance, our buildings, our whatever it is with someone else's. I, I'll tell you, this is one of the, the best things we've ever done at New Life. Now, we do count attendance because we're required to, because we have a loan with the bank, and the bank wants to know how the measurables. The bank, you know, and by the way, I, the, the phrase being a slave to the lender is true. And we are on a mission here of being debt-free at, at New Life Church. We, back in January, um, we began a Move the Mountain campaign. We've paid off about $2.5 million of debt since January. Uh, we're about to refinance our loan. It's about to, uh, we're about to be, we're very aggressive here about being debt-free. But we're required to count attendance and let them know on a monthly basis how many people are attending New Life. I don't know that number. I don't ever ask for that number, hardly ever. 
And most pastors are stunned by that. I don't know how many people attend New Life. I don't ask. Now, somebody does know, and if I needed to know, I could ask and get the numbers. But what it's done for me, and, and I don't submit our numbers for the top 100 biggest, greatest, awesomest church list. I don't do that. If you do, that's fine. I don't. Uh, we're not on the list. We would be, I guess. I don't know. The point is, it, it did something in the life of our church, in the life of our staff primarily. I don't ask how many people are coming to the junior high service. I don't ask how many people are coming to the college service. I don't ask how many people are coming to the high school service or how many small groups we have. I don't mind. Those are all good, measurable data. I don't mind. It's not evil in a sense. But in our culture here at New Life, it was liberating to start focusing on the things that are most important. What I do ask is how many people are going on mission trips? How many people are a part of your discipleship? How many people, uh, how many people are being baptized? How many people gave their life to Christ in the last month? Those are good measurables. And by, so it's not that I won't ask how many people are attending. It's just that it's not the primary measurable of our success. There are other ways to measure if God is at work among you and if you're being successful in ministry. And what it's done for us, this, we started this about three years ago. And it's, it's been liberating. Now we're talking about the most important things in our team meetings. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about equipping. We're talking about uh, leading people from one step to the next. We're talking about releasing and sending and, and church planting and mission sending. We're talking about all of those things. And then maybe as an aside, maybe as a, a brief mention, we might talk about attendance from time to time, but it's not the primary discussion. And let me tell you something. Uh, your staff knows what's important to you. Your team, your volunteers knows what's important to you. You know what's important to you? What you talk about most, most often. What you highlight, what you tend to emphasize, that's what's most important because that's what's coming out. Our, our mouth always betrays our heart. I, can, I know exactly what's in your heart. I'll just listen to you for 30 minutes. I can tell you what's in your heart. No matter how you cleverly disguise it, our mouth always betrays our heart. So our staff, our team, our leaders, our volunteers, they know what's important because it's what we emphasize. It's what we talk about. What are you asking? What questions are you asking? The questions that you're asking determines what's important to you. And for us, I don't mind, again, I don't mind, I'm not demonizing the idea of asking attendance numbers. Just don't make it the primary thing. Make it very secondary. And you'll see something, you'll see, what you'll see is you'll see teams, volunteers begin to emphasize and spend their time and energy on the things that are most important instead of constantly trying to build attendance numbers to keep the pastor happy. It just, it takes a while to, to, to bleed that out of your culture if it's already there. It'll take a while. And by the way, they will not believe you at first that that's not important. <laughs> You have to just keep telling them it's not that important. It's important that people are growing. It's important that people are being built. It's important that disciples are being made. And by the way, if you're forming disciples, the church growth numbers will take care of themselves. I promise you. Disciples make disciples. So no matter how hard I try to always be tempted to measure my success by attendance numbers, but I'm not going to, right? All right, number three. Here's, here's one that's closely related. The best thing I can do to build and grow God's kingdom is to be myself and not compare myself to others. I, 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 by the way, I'm a learner. I do listen to other preachers, other teachers, communicators, and I do read. I read a lot. I read a lot. Of, uh, reading is not something I do for fun. Reading is something I do out of discipline. If, uh, if I want to have fun, I watch sports on TV or I read Sports Illustrated, but to, out of discipline, because I'm a learner and a grower, I do read, and I want to read. I want to learn. I want to grow. And so you have to decide, are you a learner and a reader out of discipline or out of joy? Either way, you've got to be a learner and a reader. And so I'm learning from other people. I'm growing from other people. I want to be better at what I do. 
But at the end of the day, the best thing I can do for the kingdom of heaven is to be myself, is to be who I am, to relax, to not, to not try to emulate so much, as, uh, but be a learner, but not, not to put myself in some kind of box, to be like them. It, it's a big, and by the way, this is a big wrestling match. Who are you comparing yourself to? It's okay to, to say, they're good at this, I want to be good at this, but at the end of the day, I want to I stay true to who Brady Boyd is. I'm a middle-aged guy fighting a spare tire who likes sports. That's who I am, and it's okay. Number four is a good one. It takes a long time to become old friends. So nurture and cherish the old friendships God's given me. I, I, the older I get, the, long, the, the more aware I am of how valuable long-time friends are for me. It takes a long time, though, to nurture that, to protect that, to care for that. It takes a lot of intentional effort on my part and their part. It takes, a, it takes a lot of intentionality to stay friends with your spouse, right? Pam and I have one very simple goal in our marriage, is to be friends for the rest of our life. That solves a lot of our other marriage issues, if that's primary in our marriage. To be friends, just to, to like each other. That's a big deal, isn't it? Kind of end up at the end of your life liking each other. <laughs> and, and, and so our kids are... Almost out of the house. Next 10 years, they'll be out of the house. Our goal is very simple. To like being around each other. To be friends. After they're gone. To still like hanging out. And, for, and that's one of the things I saw with Eugene and Jan, by the way. I loved. They were, they were joking with one another. They'd been married over 50 years. They, were, they liked each other. You could tell. They, they picked at one another. They, 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 they were playful. They're almost 80 years old, and they were still enjoyed being around. You could tell it wasn't a burden to be around one another. They enjoyed that. But it takes a long time to become old friends. And let me ask you a question. Who, who are you pursuing right now for friendship? And I'll, 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 I believe this strongly. I think pastors are probably the loneliest people in the world. And a lot of it is their, our own fault. Because we have to purposely pursue new friendships and purposely nurture old friendships. I, am, I said this to our church on Sunday. I am always looking for new friends. I really am. I, I have not gotten to a place in my life where I feel like i got enough friends. I don't have enough friends. I'm looking for God-ordained, divinely inspired friendships all the time in my life. Because I, I, think, I think it's valuable, super valuable. And it keeps me from being a lonely pastor who has no one to talk to. I want friends. I need brothers. Pam and I need brothers and sisters. We need, we need new friendships and we need old, nurtured ones. We need both of those things in our world. And Pam and I believe there's always an empty chair in our life for somebody new. There's always an empty space in our life for someone new to come and sit and be a part of our life. I was thinking uh, of the story you know, of Ananias, and, not Ananias, but of Priscilla and Aquila. When I spoke on this past Sunday, but in Paul, Paul, when he came into uh, the city... When he came into Corinth, he had just left Athens. You know, he'd had this, he was tired, he was worn out, and the two people that were waiting for him were new friends, Priscilla and Aquila. And God brought them into his life at a key time, a key place, a place where he was exhausted and discouraged, and yet this couple, these new friends came into his life, and it changed him forever. In fact, he says later on in Romans 16 that they saved his life. When he writes the letter back to the Church of Rome, he says, hey, greet Priscilla and Aquila for me and, and tell them, thank you for, you. They, they saved my life. I mean, there's a, there are key friendships that God may be wanting to put in your life right now that might save your life one day. 
But we have to be, we have, to be have our eyes open, our ears open. God, are you, are, you, are you bringing new people into our lives, new friends, welcoming new people into our lives all the time? I don't, we're not a closed society. The kingdom of heaven is not a closed society. The kingdom of heaven is an open chair. The kingdom of heaven is an open front door. The kingdom of heaven is a welcoming front porch. It takes a long time to become old friends. And I've, I've been the pastor here five years now, and I'm just now feeling like family here. It takes a long time to feel like family. Now, uh, when, um, Pam and I, when we came to New Life, um, this is the first time I made two vows. I don't ever want to live in a parsonage. So my first time I became a pastor, I lived in a parsonage. And then I made another vow. I don't ever want to be voted on. It's an awful feeling, by the way. How many of you have ever been voted on? Like, voted in or out? <laughs> don't re- if you've been voted out, I'm sorry. But I mean, if you voted, voted in or out. So Pam and I had never experienced that. We came from more of an apostolic, prophetic tradition of setting in pastors where it was, it was through an elder-based, you know, where they recognized your callings, placed their hands on you, set you in. We never had to be voted on. And I, I remember how awful it felt here that first Sunday. I walked... You know, everybody's watching me because I'm the, the guy who's following the guy who's going to be the pastor. And, and, there, and I walked up on, and I told Pam, the guy who was introducing me was nervous and, and was kind of botching it a bit. And, and really, basically, his, his, uh, his um, good guy, but basically what he said was, lower your expectations, now meet Brady Boyd. <laughs> it's truly. It's what he said. Please lower your expectations. Now welcome uh, the candidate for pastor, Brady Boyd. And I leaned over to Pam. I said, if I don't throw up in the next five minutes, this is going to be a huge success. <laughs> I mean, I'm just serious. It was that. I, like, that's what I said before I walked up on the stage the first time in your life. If I don't throw up in the next five minutes, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> and I just remember the feeling of being voted on. I felt like I had this big old sign around my neck. We'll preach for food. <laughs> Please like me. I'm nice. Yeah. And so that was one of the first things we changed after us. Like, we're, the next guy's not going to get voted on. Let's don't, let's, let's, I don't see any votes in the scriptures. Let's let the, the apostolic elder function of the church do that next time with overseers. And if you disagree, that's fine. But uh, if you like being voted on, then God bless you. Um, it, I just never want it to happen again. If it does, I'm, God, I promise I will do it again if you tell me. Just, please don't ever tell God what you're not going to do. I've heard that before, too, you know. So I'm totally open to being voted on again. <laughs> yeah, which leads me to number five. And this is one of the most important life lessons I've ever learned in ministry. And this is, if, if there was only one of the ten that I wish you would really hear and consider, number five, I think, would by far be it. Let me read this out to you, and I'm going to explain it. I believe this is one of my core life convictions. I will only have as much spiritual authority as I'm willing to submit to myself. Independence will destroy me. But there's power in submission. Now, I I believe, let me just say this to you. I believe the Lord is looking for trustworthy leaders. Would you agree with that? I mean, so how does he know if you're trustworthy? Are you submitted to divine human authority that he's already explained and laid out in Scripture? I believe in divine human authority. I believe the, 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 the church was formed and shaped around divine human authority that we are to submit to, even though it's imperfect because it's run by humans. But what I've found is I, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not. I'm not a scholar. Nobody's ever accused me of that. Um, I, I, I read and I learn. I'm a thinker. I am. But I'm not, I'm not the the most polished presenter. But the one thing that I think 
the, the reason the Lord brought me to new life. And I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you an inside story of what happened. There was four of us that were being considered as candidates for this position. And I, I can tell you the moment that I became the candidate. It was in a meeting at Gateway Church. The search committee ended up at Gateway. They came down where I was pastoring at Gateway Church. And I, 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 know the, I remember the conference room that we were all in. And there in the room was Jimmy Evans, who was the pastor of Trinity Fellowship in Amarillo, who's a close mentor friend. There was Tom Lane in that room, who is my spiritual dad. Uh, my dad passed away in 2005, and Tom Lane uh, is the guy that I, I he's my dad. I mean, he, 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 I asked him, he said yes. So when I need dad, I'm 45, but I still need a dad to talk to every once in a while. And there are questions that I ask. I, I need a dad's voice in my life. And so Tom Lane is that guy. Robert Morris was in that room. Robert Morris is my pastor. I, I, I served under his, with him. He's still someone that's uh, wise counsel to me. He's my pastor. And then also in that room were a group of gateway elders. I was a part of the gateway eldership. I was an elder there. And uh, then there was a search committee. So there was about 10 or 15 people in that room. And I was in there for most of the discussion. And then they asked me to leave because they wanted to talk to these guys without me in the room. And I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't find this out till later. Um, <laughs> this is classic Jimmy Evans, if you know him. Jimmy Evans said... Um, if you guys want a show pony, then Brady's not your guy. If you want someone who's submitted to authority and, and will listen to people, he's your guy. And it was at that moment that that's when they chose me. If you want a show pony, find somebody else. If you want somebody who'll listen and can be corrected and who will, who will listen to counsel, he's your guy. It was one of the most sincere compliments I've ever gotten in my life. I'm not a show pony but I, am, I, have, I have discovered that the more I submit to godly, sometimes imperfect authority in my life, the more God trusts me with authority. And God can only trust us with the authority. Some of you, there's nothing wrong with wanting real spiritual authority in your life because it's, it's, a, it's a godly ambition. I want, I want to have the authority of Scripture. I want to have the authority of the leader. If you want that kind of authority, you can't get it as an independent leader. And I'll tell you, this is one of the things uh, that is most disturbing to me right now about how many orphaned leaders are out there leading the church because they never were fathered well, they never were sent, and they were never blessed. And they're not under any kind of accountability. In fact, I was with a group of church planters uh, not long ago in Dallas, and in the room there, there were, there were a lot. I bet, I bet in that room there were somewhere between, I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand members represented Christians represented by the leaders in that room, and they were, there, there was one denomination that was there that had planned to plant somewhere 2,400 churches last year. You know what he said to me? He said, we're going to plant around 2,400 churches around the world, and we expect almost half of them to fail. He said, and I said, well, why? Why? That's a lot of money and time and resources and hurt parts. He said, he said Brady, we have not figured out how to send and father and oversee them. We, we, know how to, we know how to plant them. We don't know how to father them. He said, number one, uh, young men and women, they, they don't know what it means to submit. And us as the Abraham, Isaac generation don't know what it means to father them. So it's a perfect storm. I don't know how to oversee you and father you. You don't know how to submit. So what's going to happen? Well, the divorce is going to happen. They're going to fail. They're going to run out there full of fire and passion. And they're going to fail. Because there's no fathers in their lives. And denominations right now are wrestling with this. 
This is the issue they're wrestling with. How do, okay, we understand how to throw money at it. We know, we know how to even um, recognize who can plant a church. We, we can do the pre-assessment. We can tell who's going to be good at it and who's not, according to some data and to some measurables. But we don't know how to love them and coach them and father them and come alongside them. We don't know. And this is a, a broken place in the church right now, and I'm on a mission to figure that out. And in fact, tomorrow, I hope, I hope you can come to our breakout. I'm gonna, uh, tomorrow's breakout is with me, Ross Parsley, Rob Brendel, and Aaron Stern. The four of us are going to lead a breakout tomorrow. And uh, Rob Brendel, he's about three and a half, four years into a church plant. Ross Parsley is about two years into a church plant. And Aaron Stern is in his first year as a church plant. These are all three churches that we have planted out of here in the last four years. And I've asked them to kind of share, what have you learned in four years of church planting and two years of church planting and in, and in your first year of church planting but let me tell you what they got right. All three of those men got something really right. And I think they're all, and by the way, they're all blessed. They're, if you want to look at numerical, whatever is success, and they're seeing people saved and baptized, their churches are growing. They're all doing well. And the reason I think that God's hand is upon them is because all three of them came to me and said, I want to be sent out. I, I, want, I don't want to leave and be blessed. I want to be, I want to be sent out. And if that's a process, that takes time. It, it requires them to be patient. And, and so what happened is we, we brought them up in front of the church. We, well, we first brought them before our elders. We prayerfully prayed over them and, 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 and evaluated whether or not they were called to do this. And then we laid hands on them in front of the church, and it was a wedding and a celebration. The same with Phil McCallum. Phil McCallum's in here. He, he, he didn't plant a church. He took a church in Evergreen, Evergreen Church up in Bothell, Washington, the suburb of Seattle, and there's been other pastors that we've laid hands on and sent out as sons and as, I'm not their spiritual dad, but the church is, is their spiritual family. And, and God blessed them for that. And we talk, we, we talk to each other, we have conversations with one another. And I, I'm completely convinced if I, if I said to them, listen, I think you're about to make a big mistake, all of them would tap the brake and at least consider my counsel. I don't ever do that, hardly ever. I would never impose on them. I don't impose my will on them. I don't, want, I don't have time to. But the point is, if they ask me or if I suggested something, we have the relationship that would cause us to pause and consider and be prayerful. And so their chances of being blessed and successful have grown exponentially because they've caught the idea how powerful it is to have someone in your life who can tell you no. Let me ask you a question. Who can tell you no? That you'll at least stop and consider whether or not they're right. I'm not, I'm not talking about lording it over. That we read that scripture last night. Don't lord it over them. I'm not calling every day, checking their schedule. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm, not, I'm very empowering in that way. And, I, and the people that oversee me are very empowering. They don't call and ask me about my business every day. But I'm going to tell you this. If I, I, they know me well enough, and they know the tone of my voice well enough. If I was lying, I think they would know. Submission works on both states. You know, I, I, can, uh, I can manipulate that system to my advantage if I want. I've just learned that it's dangerous to do that. It's deceitful and dangerous. I don't, want, I don't want to live that life. I want to live a life that's open, that has real men and women who can speak into me and correct me and help me. And I just, it's a good question. I've, in fact, I've looked at pastors many times. Who can tell you no? I mean, it's a stunned look. Uh, I'm kind of the king, and this is my kingdom. <laughs> I don't want to, I'm not the king, I'm the pastor. Here, here's a number six. And we talked, Eugene and I talked about a bit of this on the video, but this is which I, someone told me 15 years ago, the sacred is powerful. 
Do not walk away from the liturgies and the sacraments that have sustained the church, the local church, for 2,000 years. You know, here's what happened, okay? And, you, and you, for those of you who have been pastors for a while, you can kind of see this progression. In the 1980s and early 90s, the hip, cool thing was counseling. You know, how to, how to provide soul care for people. So everybody, the rage was uh, counseling and uh, that, that idea. And then around the mid-90s, leadership became the big issue. Man, everybody was... A, absorbing and devouring books on leadership. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with counseling. I think the church needed some help with the way they were counseling and caring for the souls of people. And certainly we needed help with leadership. We were, we were void of leadership in many cases. We were weak in leadership. But then, and then in the last five or ten years, it's been justice issues. You know, all the leading voices now are people who are talking about justice, social issues. And by the way, I think that's great too. I mean, we have dream centers we've opened here in Colorado Springs. We opened a women's medical clinic last year. We've seen about 1,100 patients. We're about to, we'll find out this week, hopefully, if we have the ability through a grant to purchase an apartment complex for homeless single moms. We have two homes that have been given to us where young men are living that have been emancipated from the foster system. We, we're into that because it's a God calling. We're a James 127 church. We've seen hundreds of orphans and adopted into families here in our, in our state. Colorado's about to become the first state in the union with, with, uh, with virtual zero kids in the foster system awaiting adoption. Our, our state's going to be the first one. And that started in 2008 with a movement among a lot of local churches to make that a priority. So I'm not against justice. I'm pro-justice. I am, I'm for it. I bet it comes out of me real easy. But the point is that the church has somehow drifted away from the poets, the theologians, the scholars, the sacraments. How'd that happen? When for 1,900 plus years, the local church was shaped and formed and solidified and grounded by the liturgies, the sacraments. I mean, some of you come from traditions where you recite the creeds on Sunday. I, didn't never, I never grew up reciting the creeds. I didn't even know what they were until I was in college. I'd never, I mean, I'd heard of them, but we didn't recite them. And, and so the Apostles' Creed was simply a way of saying these are the non-negotiables of our faith. They, they, were, they were correcting very serious, traumatic heresies that were being spoken in the local church. And about 200 years after Christ left the earth, there were already significant heresies. Almost immediately there were heresies being spoken. And the, and the creeds were a way to center us on what the, was really non-negotiable in our faith. If you ask the 20-somethings or 30-somethings, what are the non-negotiables of your faith? You'll get a big blank stare in most cases. God... Jesus, the Bible, that they can't clarify it, they can't even articulate it most of the time past that. So it's no wonder that we have somewhere between 50 and 80% of our young people walking away from the faith after they leave high school, depending on what study that you want to listen to. 50 to 80% of our students are walking away from the faith, not the church, the faith. Because they've grown up in a world where nothing's absolute, where nothing is sacred. If we don't, and Pastor Jack said this brilliantly. I said in a class yesterday that he taught. He said, if we, don't, if we don't somehow keep our hand connected to the history of our church, we'll look up one day and we'll think church is only about ourselves. And what, what reaching back into history does, it reminds us that we, are, that we have a cloud of witnesses surrounding us that have already run this race well and have gone before us. And we have to keep our feet grounded. In fact, by the way, we're, we're moving into an age, I believe, in our world where if we do not talk about the, the basics of our faith, 
then people's faith will be shattered. If we do not talk about the rock of, of the resurrected Christ, the sand of our days, the sand of our world will consume our people. And it's our fault for not talking more about the sacred rocks of our faith, the resurrected Christ. I mean that. Let me just challenge you for a moment, all right? I know, again, I told the story. When we came here, we were doing communion once a quarter, and that was plenty for me. And in fact, I had a pastor tell me one time not long ago, I was telling him about this decision we've made to do communion every week. And he goes, wow, that's, a, that's, a, that's just a big administrative task. And I bit my tongue like this. Um, well, it's quite the administrative task to preach every Sunday, too. It's quite the administrative task to put together that song list, put together a band and have an AV tech crew to put the words on the screen. That's quite the administrative task. I just wanted to say that to him. Like, How did we get away from that? Yes, it's quite the, and by the way, it is quite the administrative task. For thousands of people every Sunday, for us to pass and do that, it's quite the administrative task. But it is so worth it. And we're returning, and we've only been doing this for like four Sundays. So check back with me next year, and I'll let you know how this is working. But, um, so I'm not saying, we're 20 years now, we've been we've doing three weeks. But I can tell you what it's done in our church in just three weeks. It has, it has let me tell you, it'll change your preaching, by the way. Because we're doing communion after the, after the sermon. So, you know what, that's one of the things that happened in the Reformation, is the focus of the worship went from the table to the sermon, Martin Luther kind of, that was one of the, I think, one of the negatives of the Reformation. There's a lot of positives, obviously, but one of the negatives is the focus of the gathering turned from the table being the highlight to the sermon being the highlight. You think about your church, everything builds up to the sermon, right? The band is a warm-up act for the big show that's coming with me. I'm bringing it. Come on, I'm, you know I'm telling the truth, that's what you're thinking. My sermon is the highlight. Please get out of the way, give me the stage. Well, that's not at all the way the early church formed. They, there, were, there were teaching. There were singing of the Psalms. But the highlight of their gathering was the agape feast. Remembering the resurrected body, the, the Lord. And here's what I believe the sacraments do. The sacraments draw us back into the history of our past. Remembering. That's exactly what would have happened at Passover. Any of the Passover meals, they were, they were remembering being rescued out of Egypt into the promised land. And then, and then they were remembering... What was happening now, the, the present Christ that's at work in us. But then something else began to happen in the New Covenant when Jesus came. They began looking forward to a hopeful kingdom that was coming when he was going to come to make all things right. The sacraments do all three of those things. The sacraments draw us back to a past of resurrection and redemption. The, the sacraments draw us into a present-day memory of what Jesus is at doing at work in our hearts. And the sacraments lean us forward into a hopeful future that is coming, that is breaking in. Every Sunday. Let me tell you, it'll change the way you preach because I know I've got to do communion after I speak. So now the word resurrection is jumping off the page at me like never before. My dad had a great saying, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's a good saying right there, by the way. That's, that's heavy. That's a good southern saying. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When, you're, when you make communion, the Eucharist, the center of your worship, everything looks like the resurrection. The scriptures. It's amazing how transformational it is in my study. Wow, I see resurrection everywhere. In fact, you know, that was the primary topic of Paul's sermons, Peter's sermons, John's sermons. It was not heaven and hell, although they believed in that. It was a resurrection. Read the sermons that Peter and, and just read Peter and Paul's sermons throughout the book of Acts. The focus was the resurrection of Christ, not 
eternal salvation or any of that, although they believe that. It mattered now what you decided. It doesn't just matter in the future what you decide about Jesus. It matters right now what you believe about Jesus. All right, I want to get on. A, but that was all free of charge. All right, number... But the sacred is powerful. The sacred is very powerful. Don't ever, please don't let us ever lose our sense of history and wonder and mystery. All right, here's number seven. Um, <laughs> this is a good one. My brain will always feel like scrambled eggs on Sunday afternoon. So don't make any decisions or fire any staff until Tuesday morning. <laughs> that was a danger yesterday. You know, I don't come to the office on Mondays. Um, and, and Pastor Eugene did not. I want to dive into this a little bit more because, in just a moment. But we have to be very aware of, of our emotional state when we're making decisions, especially after we have ministered and pastored. Do you know how much adrenaline and endorphins and chemi- chemicals are released into your body when you're preaching and teaching on the weekends? I mean, it's unbelievable amount of chemicals in your, that have toxins that have been released into your body when you're exerting that much emotions and adrenaline speaking, especially if you're passionate and you believe what you're speaking and you care about the people you're speaking to. Your body is, I literally, I can feel my body uh, on Sunday afternoon just full of bad stuff. And I have to drink water, I have to go to sleep, have to sit outside and get some fresh air, and it takes me until about Tuesday morning to feel normal again. I don't know about you. Maybe you're a Superman. I'm not. Maybe I'm just a big uh, softy. But I'm just telling you, you have to be very aware of your emotional state. When things come out of you, you've got that, that doesn't just naturally, normally replace itself. And learning to follow the rhythms of your body. And do not apologize for this, by the way. Uh, I love the people of our church. They just do not know how I feel on Sunday afternoon. And there are demands on my time. Hey, come back Sunday afternoon and be a part of this. You don't want me there on Sunday afternoon. I'm not even nice on Sunday afternoon. I don't even like you on Sunday afternoon. Don't invite me back to stuff on Sunday night. I come to, you know what, we have a Sunday night 5 p.m. prayer meeting. That's the service where I attend. I sit on the back row and I pray with the rest of the church on Sunday afternoon. I don't lead it. It would be awful if I led it on Sunday afternoon. Let me ask you a question. Do you attend church? I know you lead one. Do you ever attend one? This was revelation to me a few months ago. It dawned on me, I have not attended churches in years. I have, I, I, I'm, I'm here to confess, I have not attended church in years. I haven't attended church with my family in years. Just sitting together like you get to do, like our, our people get to do, with their family, worshiping together. I don't ever, when do you get to do that? They may be sitting there with me on Sunday morning, but my mind is on the sermon and on the, the spiritual atmosphere of our church, on why the soundboard is maybe sounds different this Sunday, or where's the PowerPoint, or why is the usher letting that lady do that? I'm, I'm thinking about all that. <laughs> You're thinking that too. Why is it so cold in here? Why is it hot in here? What's going on? That's what's, what's going through our minds, right? I wish we could be more sacred than that, but you're thinking those same things. This is how you know if you're called to be a senior pastor, by the way, when you can walk in a room and see everything wrong with it. <laughs> you know that's a calling to be a senior pastor right there. I can see everything. Why, 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 why? And especially after I speak on Sunday, I'm, not, I'm in a foul mood. And if the Cowboys are playing bad, it's even worse. It goes downhill after that. 
I want to preach on hell. I want to make the room hot. <laughs> it's just the way it works. And by the way, just don't make any key decisions when you're in that. Honestly, I'm being serious here. I know a lot of pastors have made foolish decisions because they just weren't aware of their bodies and what's going on in their minds. Be super sensitive. Pam and I were just talking about this. Pam, bless her heart, she's as sweet as she can be. She knows this on Sunday afternoon, but from time to time, she'll say things to me on Sunday afternoon. I'll give her that Sunday afternoon look like, I can't talk about that. She goes, oh, yeah, it's Sunday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> I'll talk. Let's Tuesday morning. Let's get back right back on that. Let's talk about that. And she, I'm, a, I'm blessed because she gets that. And if, you, if, you're, if you're a spouse of someone who's giving themselves out in ministry, just be sensitive. They don't mean anything they say for the next 48 hours, all right? Or they mean it, and they've just been hiding it very well, okay? All right, here's number eight. If, we do, if I do not teach the church to worship and pray, I will be responsible to entertain them every week. I just don't, I'm, I'm sick of that responsibility. I am not going to entertain people at New Life. When I came here, I actually had a lady say, you know, I don't know if I can keep coming to New Life. It's not as exciting as it used to be. I said, thank God. I looked at her and went, thank God. And she just looked at me and went, I said, I'm not here to excite you. I'm not here to create a buzz. I'm not here for that. I'm here to lead worship and get out of the way. I'm here to point you to Christ and somehow get out of the way of that. I'm not here to create buzz and excitement, hype. I'm here to teach you to worship and pray. I'm here to worship and pray. And by the way, we can't teach people to worship and pray if we're not worshipers and prayers. We can only impart who we are. I can't give away what I'm not. I can only give away who I am. If I'm not a man of worship and a man of prayer, I can't stand in front of the congregation and teach them to be a people of worship and people of prayer because who I am, they will become because I'm leading them and I'm influencing them. But I'm not there to teach them, to entertain them. Now, and I, I know it's confusing to people. We do have a stage, but we've toned down. We, the light show, you notice that if those of you who come to New Life, that thing has gone way down. We don't, the smoke machine is for the youth of night on Wednesday night, all that. They can do whatever they want with the smoke. We've toned it down. Because I'm not there to, I'm, I'm there to engage their senses because I think we are five, we're sensory people. So all the five senses uh, were certainly a part of the original worship experience. That's why the meal was a part of taste. That was a part of the worship experience. The Eucharist meal in, involved all five senses. was part of involving all five senses. So I'm no, not at all opposed to any of that. It's just that if it's not worshipful, let's not do it. If it's not pointing people to Jesus, let's not do it. If it enhances our worship of Jesus, I'm okay with technology. I'm okay with setting and lighting. I don't mind any of that as long as it's pointing people up to Christ and away from us. If it's creating a show-like atmosphere, I don't want to be a part of it. And so it's a constant tension back and forth. I don't mind the attractional model of church because I want it to attract people to church, but that's not the way I want to win them. I want to win them to Jesus because I want them to be kept by Jesus. If I win them by entertainment, I have to keep them by entertaining them. I have to one-up it every Sunday. I have to get in these creative meetings and go, we've got to wow them better this Sunday than we wowed them better last Sunday. I don't want to be a part of those meetings. I don't want to lead those meetings. Let's find out how can we point them toward Jesus better. And it's not easy. We live in a, we live in a culture that demands um, marketing and creative skills. I understand that. But I'm... I, but I'm not of this world. I'm not of this age. I can be myself and I can lead people to Christ with the benefits of technology, but not at the expense of our worship. Number nine. This is a big one. I will never regret spending time with my family instead of saying yes to a church meeting that someone else could lead. 
And I want to speak to something to leaders and pastors, but especially senior pastors. Why do you have to be at every meeting and every place? Why do you have to go to everything? You know what it says? Eugene, Pastor Eugene touched on this. What it says to your team is that you don't trust them. There are significant ministry meetings here that I don't show up at. And in the early days, that bothered a lot of people. Why, is, why isn't Pastor Brady here? Does he not think it's important? No, I thought it was very important. But I want people to know I trust them to lead it. So I didn't come to everything. And it was a big shock. Like, where's Pastor Brady? This meeting must not be important. This meeting must not... Where is he? Why is he not here? Because, listen, the only way to empower people to lead is to let them lead. The Jesus model was, I'm going to do it in front of you. Then I'm, going to do it, then I'm going to do it with you. Then I'm going to watch you do it. And then I'm going to let you go do it. And you come back and tell me what happened. So I'm modeling in front of them. Then I'll do it alongside them. And then I'll watch them do it. And then they can do it without me. And I'll hear about it later. And out of that, there's a sense of trust now. That if I say, you know, like Wednesday night. I'm going to be here Wednesday night. But I'm not leading Wednesday night. It's going to be probably the best thing you've ever been to. I'm not even going to lead it. John Egan's going to lead it. David Perkins is going to lead that meeting on Wednesday night. You're going to love it. And I'll be there cheering them on. But I don't have to be up front and leading everything. And sometimes the best thing I can do is stay home and not be there. Because it says something. It, says, it doesn't say I don't value. It says I do value. I trust you to do this. And by the way, uh, sometimes my family needs me more than the church needs me. In fact, a lot of times... My goal is very simple. On my tombstone, I want great husband, great dad, pretty good pastor. And that requires making choices. By the way, I'll let you in on a little secret. A lot of times, um, I tell people ask me to go do things, and I say, I would love to do that. And sometimes that's a lie, I know. But, uh, or or that, sounds, that sounds interesting. What a compelling invitation. That's another good way of saying it. Here's what I say to them, but I have something already planned. You know what I had planned? To go home and get into a bad pair of shorts and hang out with my family. I'm telling the truth. I had love. That sounds like a compelling invitation. So if you're a new lifer and you say, hey, would you want to come do this? I'm like, hey, that sounds awesome. But I already have something planned. Almost always. It's, I had planned to go home and chase Pam. That's it. That's what I had planned. To hang out with Abram in the hot tub out back. Or to shoot hoops with Callie in the front yard. And what that does, it, it helps me be honest. It, I am honest about it. I have something else planned. On my calendar is family on my calendar. And by the way, if you don't, if you don't put your family on your calendar, uh, your family will take the back seat. It's on my calendar. You can see my calendar. It's, you know what it says? Out of the office. That's code word for at home. It's on my calendar. I schedule it. So that when somebody says, hey, what, what are you doing at 3 o'clock this afternoon? I look at my calendar. I already have something scheduled. And it really is. It says out of the office. At home. And I don't apologize for that. And neither should you. I, I work hard. I have a job to do. I am productive with my job. But I will not get on that treadmill. I've been on that treadmill. I talked about it last night. I've already been on that treadmill one time. I'm not getting back on it. I'm not going to get back on the treadmill. I don't have anything to prove to anybody but God. And, I, and I, I get, I'm evaluated by our elders on my performance. I know all that. And I'm doing a good job, I think. But go home. So here's the, here's the, uh, 
here's what we believe as a staff. This is, this is something, this is talking about a great conversation for you to have with your staff. So when I hire someone on our staff, here's what I tell every one of them. I tell them three or four things. Number one, I don't expect you to work more than 50 hours a week on average. Now, this week is conference week, so there's a lot of us that's going to work more than 50 hours a week this week. But you know what? A lot of us are going to take Thursday and Friday off, too, or Monday. On average, at the end of the year, we will average about 50 hours a week. Some weeks, like desperation week or conference week or whatever, it may be more, but then, there, then we'll compensate for that along the way. But at the end of the year, on average, we'll work 50 hours a week or less. Here's another thing I tell them. I don't want you out of your house more than three nights a week, on average. I want you home. Or if you're not married, then don't you eat your friends at doing something fun. But if you can get your staff home, if they're out four or five nights a week on average, if they're required, you're, they're headed for burnout. I can just tell you, I can predict their future for you. They're not going to be with you very long. You're going to wear them out. You know why you're running through staff? Because you're, they're out of their house too, way too much. And then here's the third thing I tell them. I look at the spouse, the husband or the wife, or the person that I'm hiring, and I say, if they violate these first two rules, here's my cell phone number, and I want you to call and tell me. You're not tattling. You're telling me the truth. I want to know if they're violating these two rules. And by the way, I do get phone calls. I say, Pastor Brady, and it's always trembling. Pastor Brady, they're gone a lot. Well, that's about to stop. I mean, I call them in and say, look, you're working too much. Go home. If I have to tell you to go home, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to fire you if you work too much. (laughs) I'm serious. I've, I've had that conversation more than once with staff. Because I hire people that are doers and good at done, talented. I mean, that's the kind of staff we're all looking for, right? Team volunteers that we're all looking for. Get it done, work hard. But then I tell them, look, I'm not going to hire people that I have to put, if I put the whip to your back, you're not the person I even want to consider. I want people, I want people to have to put the bridle in their mouth. But it, it requires us to consistently hold steady these, these rules. You will go home. You will not, listen, I tell people workaholics have killed a lot more families in the church than alcoholics. I have looked into the eyes of the victims of workaholics and it's the same look I see in the eyes of parents, kids who had parents who were alcoholics. It's the same evil. We're, get, we're medicating ourselves with the wrong medicine. And I tell people, I've been a good slave. I know what it means. I've been a workaholic. Pam, uh, I've told this story to, to our church before. And I, I, when, I was, when I was at my height of slavery, in my early 20s, when I was working hard to prove myself, I came home and I was working three full-time jobs. It turned out I was working three full-time jobs at, the, at this school slash church slash outreach. All one thing. And um, I came home. I was working about 75, 80 hours a week some weeks. I, mean, I was never home. I came home one night and Pam was packing her bags in her living in her bedroom. We'd been married about three years, four years. I said, "What are you doing?" She said, "I'm a single woman. You're never here." She said, "If I'm going to be a single woman, I'm going to go live with my parents." I said, "All right." It was an eye. I was like, "That was the awakening I needed." I said, "Pam, I will resign tomorrow." No, you won't. I said, "I will. I'll resign tomorrow. I'm going to. Don't don't leave. I'll resign tomorrow." I walked in and resigned. They were stunned. You're leaving? Yes, I'm leaving. I gave them my notice. And I left. And I took a $5 an hour job at a radio station. And I called minor league baseball at night to make our ends meet. But I was working about 30 hours a week. And I got to see my wife again. And they hired three full-time people to replace me at the the church. They did. Three full-time people they hired to do my job. And I realized I'm not getting back on that treadmill again. 
I'm not going to do it. And if you're doing it, I'm not going to cry at your funeral. I will attend. I'm not going to cry. I tell our staff that. You're going to work yourself to death. I will attend your funeral. I'll say nice things, but I'm not crying over you. I will not weep. It's your choice. I'm making it easy for you to go home. If you're going to work yourself to death, do it. But, I'm, but number one, I'm going to fire you before it happens probably anyway. In chapter one of the book that I wrote, I, <laughs> I did this. I called that guy in, a guy named Frank, in the book. I told Frank, I said, Frank, either you do what I say and go home and see your family at night, or I will fire you today. He didn't believe me. I said, I will fire you if you don't go home. And he did. He saved his life. Saved his marriage. Saved his kids. All right, here's number 10, and I'm done. There's 10 things I wish someone had told me 15 years ago. I should never feel guilty about taking a Sabbath. It was not a suggestion. And what Eugene did not explain, and I want to really, really, for just a minute or two here, talk about this. And I don't know why I didn't make the, the because I really wanted that on the, uh, to Eugene to explain the difference between a day off and a Sabbath. He touched on it, but he didn't explain it. He explained it, but we didn't put it on the edit. Let me explain to you what the difference between a day off and a Sabbath is. I know a lot of pastors that get one day off. That's not a Sabbath. If you only get one day off a week, you're probably running errands. Picking up laundry, mowing the yard, doing yard work, going to ball games. And you should do those things. But that's a day off. That's not a Sabbath. The way Eugene and Jan would spend their Sabbath, which was a Monday for them, is they would go out. They lived at the time in Baltimore, Maryland. And they would, uh, the two of them would take the kids to school. And then they would find a hiking trail somewhere, weather permitting. And they would, they would go to, and I love this, they would go to the, the trailhead and Jan would read a psalm out loud, one of the psalms. And then they would not talk again until they finished their hike. They would stop, look, sit on a rock and catch their breath, but they would not talk until their hike was finished. And then they would pack it. They had a lunch with them. And then once they got to lunchtime, they would sit and open their lunch together and talk about what they had heard God say to them in that hike. And they did this week after week after week, after year, after decade, after decade. Now, that obviously, that's, you can't do that every week. He said there were weeks that we couldn't. But consistently, we would find a place to be outside. We would take a walk. To get, we would read a psalm, take a walk, eat lunch, talk, and walk back. And that was our Sabbath. He said something happened, and over the years, our soul got restored in those Sabbaths. Now, that doesn't have to be what you do. But the point is, do you have a day where you're resting from your labors, not returning your emails, inhaling. Because ministry is exhaling, Sabbath is inhaling. I'm giving out right now, but there, I, I promise you, Thursday afternoon, I probably won't do a lot. Friday, I'm probably going to pack Pam and the kids up and go ride around and look at the aspens turning into mountains. Saturday, I'm going to go to the Air Force game. Don't, don't, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. I'm, I've got a good pace, a good rhythm, but it's intentional. These are three days of going hard, but there will be times when I inhale so that I can exhale on Sunday. Sunday will be great. It will be a good sermon, good spirit, good presence, but it's because I took a deep breath in somewhere along the way. Think about how hard it is to go, you pass out. You got to inhale. And that's what the Sabbath was required to do, to take a deep breath in. 
So whatever it means, for them it was hiking and lunch and solitude and reading the Psalms. But whatever it requires for you. For me, Pam knows this, I need, I need um, solitude. Just a few hours, I didn't, not days at a time. In fact, I, I get antsy after a day or two. But a few hours a week, I need to be by myself. She knows that. She's great with that. She lets me do that. Uh, she lets me, and she let, another thing Pam lets me do is, I think there are three people, three groups of people you need to be around, and a Sabbath is a good time to do this. Number one, I need to be with fathers, people who are ahead of me. That's a great way to spend your Sabbath, just sitting with someone who's wiser and further along than you and just talking and asking them questions. I, then I need, so I, I need people who are ahead of me on the journey. Then I need brothers. I need people who are kind of peers, who have kids similar to my age and similar age. And so I, I just need brothers that I can just, they empathize well. Fathers give you good advice. Brothers give you good empathy. Because they kind of know where you are in life. I get that. I know what it means to be in your 40s and figuring out retirement or, or am I saving enough or, you know, how, we're in a transition in our marriage because our kids are older. All those things that our brothers and fathers can tell you about, but brothers can empathize with you. And then I need sons. I need to be around young men and women who I, I can encourage. It says, those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. So I need to be around young people that I can encourage because when I encourage them, I get encouraged. It's a good way to spend your time. And do you have those three groups of people in your life? Fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, and sons and daughters. It's a great way to replenish, to inhale, to have a good balance in your life of people. It's a good way to finish well. I, I want to I end with this. And um, we have talked about this a lot. David and I have talked about it. A lot of our team, we've talked about it. And in fact, let's do this exercise right now, okay? We're going to take a, we'll, be through, we'll be through early, okay? You'll beat everybody else to the lunch, all right? They'll be still in those breakouts and we'll be gone, okay? But let me, um, let me get, ask you a question. I want you to give this serious consideration today. I want you to, with maybe a piece of paper, your iPad or whatever it is, or just if you don't have anything to write with, just for a moment, make a mental note. How many men and women do you know who are in pastoral leadership? They're over 70 years old. They still love their spouses and uh, are still married to the same spouse. And, and obviously, if they've been widowed or widowed, we understand that. But I'm talking about if both are still alive, they're still married to the, the woman or man they married early and still love the church and are passionate about the things of God and have never been disqualified for because of morality. or just They finish well. And they're in leadership. They're in church leadership. I sat down with that, and I was stunned at how few names I could put on that paper. That I believe in restoration. I believe in redemption. I believe that you can get second, third, tenth, twelve, fifteen chances to get it over. I'm talking about people who have just steadily walked the path and made it to the finish line. And maybe they're not well known. In fact, most of them aren't. But you'll be shocked at how few names are on that list. Set over 70 Still in love and married to the same spouse. Still leading the church with passion and conviction. And have navigated the potholes of failure and morality. And have kept themselves pure before God and qualified for ministry. Now here's what I'm, 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 I'm leaving you this as a lunchtime conversation because here's what I want. Here's my charge for us today. Let's all make that list. Amen? Let's all make the list. That's my goal. 
I want to be on somebody's list in 25 years. I'll be 70 in 25 years. That's just stunning to even say that. (laughs) Yikes. But I want to make your list. That's my goal of this message today. I want to make your list. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's pray for each other, okay? That's one of the reasons we come together in these convocations when when we convene together. And I really do hope you're having conversations and encouraging conversations one with another, that you are strengthening one another with your conversations. Let's pray for one another right now. Father, we are so, so thankful, grateful that you are with us. Father, you are with us. And for that, Lord, we are so encouraged and blessed today. We are so thankful that you're with us. Father, I pray that you would fill us continually with the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would pause and inhale and receive and that we would put our families back at the top of the list, God and our family, Lord, at the top, that we would be worshipers and prayers ourselves, that that we would not be discouraged by the bites of sheep, that we would understand that this part of the calling is to walk through criticisms at times, to be misunderstood at times. Father, I just pray that you would surround us with your goodness and your blessing and Lord, I pray even now in these next two days that you would infuse us with vision and wisdom and understanding and even ideas, things that we're missing because we're caught in the trees of our own church. Lord, now we're outside, we're looking back. I pray that we would see with fresh eyes what you're doing in the congregations that we lead. Father, we bless the people that we lead. We love the people we lead. We are privileged to lead the people that you've given to us. Let us be good stewards of our own lives and good stewards of the calling of pastor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, go have some great lunch and conversation. Two o'clock, you can look at the schedule. There's a whole bunch of good stuff. Glenn Packham and I are going to lead a two o'clock breakout in here about sermon prep and how we form the birth of a sermon. And uh, I think you'll be fascinated by some of that. Our board tears, either way, it'll be good. But God bless you. Have a great lunch.